2005, two brothers set off on a road trip that would eventually save the world and change television. For 15 seasons and 327 episodes, Supernatural took audiences on a wild ride of family, fate, and faith with a rocking soundtrack and a seriously cool car. But that was then, and this is now. And while the show might have ended, we're not quite done with the journey. And that's why we're watching it all over again, diving deep into every episode of Supernatural with the fine folks who made it. And we're taking you along for the ride. I'm Rob Benedict. I played Chuck Shirley, AKA God. And yes, that's a bit of a spoiler, but spoilers are gonna be fair game here. And I'm Richard Spade Jr. And I played the Trickster, also known as the Archangel Gabriel. We'll be talking about the entire series, so don't say we didn't warn you. So buckle up and settle in. This is Supernatural, then and now. Hey, it's Rob Benedict. And Richard Spate. And today we're talking about Season 1, Episode 13. Unlucky 13. And it's entitled... Route 666. Or is it Route 666? Or is it Route 666? We'll try to figure out the answer to that at the end of this <laughs> at the end of this podcast. But in the meantime, let's get into what happens. Yeah, what does happen? All right, so Dean gets a phone call from his past girlfriend. Oh, wow. A very foxy Cassie Robinson. Wow. That's her character's name. Double well. She's Foxy. I got a double well for me. She's Foxy. Nice. You sound like you're 104. <laughs> Go on. So her father was chased off the road and killed by a mysterious truck. Soon, another man dies, and Sam and Dean realize that all these weird accidents are occurring on the same road, and black men seem to be the targets. Oh, wow. After the mayor is killed. Obviously, also an African-American Actually, gentleman? no. This, the mayor is white. Oh. We don't know yet what the link is, but we find out soon enough. Uh, so after the mayor is killed, the boys and Cassie discover that all the men had a connection to the Dorian family, a wealthy white family from the town's past. Cassie's mother shares a very emotional story. Very. About how Cyrus Dorian, a known racist, was killed when Cyrus was attacking Cassie's father years ago. Her father and friends disposed of Cyrus' body and truck in the swamp and covered everything up. They did that not because they're bad people, but because... Back in the day, a lot of racist uh, people in that town. They right. wouldn't be all excited about an African-American fellow exactly. attacking they, a white guy, for their own even lives. if it was to save his own life. Exactly. And this Cyrus Dorian was not a good dude. No, he was a bad guy. Real yeah. bad guy. Yeah. Racist. He killed, he burned a, a church with children in it. Yeah, I know. Supreme bad guy. Supreme bad guy. So they realized that they must put the remains that are still in the truck to rest in order to stop this evil truck. So the boys do their thing. They bring down the racist ghost truck. Oh, and also Dean sleeps with Cassie in what is possibly maybe a first and only, but the longest making love scene I've ever seen in a Supernatural. Oh, in Supernatural? Or any show. Yeah, dude, that's, it was long. Long, hot, and heavy. It was, it just kept going. And I was sitting there going, boy, Rob's going to have a field day with this. Because oh, you are the podcast perv. I mean, it was, it was, look, first of all, she was nice to look at. Yeah, you said Foxy earlier, Grandpa. <laughs> And I just think uh, that she was a very... Uh, uh, and you think she's foxy. Oh, she's, you can't circle off of her. You're like, she was foxy. And also, she was very foxy. Um, you know, it wasn't her by herself. <laughs> I have notes for the episode. You made notes about this. Yeah, the episode. Anyway, and one of my notes is, she is foxy. <laughs> she is foxy. That's one of your notes. And then in all caps, full-blown sex scene. Yeah, I mean... And that, then Dean is hairless. Dean's completely hairless. He's a hairless, perfect Ken doll body. Hairless. Uh, I think people might take issue with the Kendall part. Why? It means he has no schwanz. Oh, jeez. You're always thinking schwanz. Well, you know, you said hairless. I say schwanz. Hairless. 
Tu penses? <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, so, yeah. So, uh, what do you think, Rich? What'd you think of uh, this episode? Man, I, I don't want to be the guy who, like, I didn't love it. I, I got to be honest. I, I did not Look, love hey, it. We've loved every episode up until now. I so know, and I feel like we've been, we give every, every episode a full beard. I'm not giving this one a full beard. Yeah. I'm going to give it a Van Dyke. Okay. Because I don't, I just Remind don't, me what a Van Dyke is. A Van Dyke is, uh, is the mustache and the goatee together. Okay, so that's. Some facial hair, but no sideburns. Okay. No, no cheek growth, just a Van Dyke. And I'm only giving it a Van Dyke. Because I didn't love the episode, but Jared and Jensen make everything entertaining. They're still yeah. so good and such right. engaging characters on the page. It's not like I didn't like it. It just wasn't my favorite. Sure, sure. It's Look, it's hard to get your mind around a killer truck. I, I, okay, here's the my big beef with it. And then I, and I'm dead serious. When the Is it the mayor who being yeah. chased down the road? Yeah. Why didn't he take a right into the trees? Like, it bugged me that he, yeah. he would just run down the road. Right. And then the truck can run over him. Yeah. There's a tree line. Right. Take a right. Yeah. Get off the road. There's also the scene where Cassie's inside her house and the truck is outside going, and she closes all the shades. And then it, it, it she runs to the other side of the house. And before she gets there, the truck's now there. Going, yeah. Somehow that also wasn't all that scary because I thought the odds of that truck making that porch with any sort of, you know, right. velocity and yeah. getting in that house, she could still just go up the stairs or yeah. out the door. Also, she says, I don't know who's driving the truck. Well, you were closing all the windows. You didn't look. Yeah. She said, it seems like nobody is driving it. I'm like, well, if you don't look. No, I, yeah, I noticed that too. I'm going to go ahead and give it a, I'm going to give it a handlebar mustache. Okay. You got a handlebar mustache, which is even less than I gave it. And I gave it a Van Dyke. That's not a great rating. I think your Van, I think your Van Dyke was, I think you overshot the metaphor. What? I think, it's mustache and goatee. That's still a lot of beard. In some circles, it's, that's a beard. No, it's not. Cause the beard has to have, has to connect. Yeah. Oh, please. Anyway, uh, we digress. I give your, I give your understanding of facial hair a soul patch. Okay. I gave it the handlebar because the handlebar has a lot of flair. And I think this episode has a lot of flair. It was, it was the Raleigh fingers of episodes. Exactly. It's a full on pulp fiction episode of Supernatural. If you, you know, you think about the season one being a bunch of short pulp fiction books uh, that this fits right in there, you know, killer truck. <laughs> wow. Where did I lose you? <laughs> I lost you at handlebar? Pulp fiction. <laughs> it lost me at handlebar. Man, you got a short... Uh, <laughs> Short attention span. So I have a note on our notes here, and it says, Rob, is Missouri really like that? Have I ever been to Cape Girardeau? We used to play Cape Girardeau in school, but I don't think I've been to Cape Girardeau. But yeah, it's it's a well-known Missouri town. I mean, I mean, Missouri has a racist past, so that part of it is accurate. But uh, no, I can't say that I've... Yeah, a lot of people drive trucks. So I guess, yeah, I guess, yeah, Missouri is kind of like that. Haunted killer trucks? Haunted killer trucks. I will I say know. this on the plus side. Yeah, Cassie. And the fact that Jensen... Dean yeah. had a cool backstory of having been in love once yep. and opened himself up and sort of been shot down. She took off on him. Yeah, that was that was a fun and and it's a good point because we've seen a lot of Sam Sam's exes, Sam's ex. We've seen the boys flirting. We haven't seen Dean's open up his heart open to up his somebody. Heart and, yeah. and have Sam be the guy who's like, Sam was like a little kid in this episode in terms of Dean's like, oh, Dean, I saw you look at it. You guys gave you a look. Like, get over yourself. You guys love you each like other. like a girl. Yeah, totally. Very brothers. Um, can I consult my notes? What else I, I thought while they're watching it? Yeah. Is, who else is hairless? I love the the uh, the bro relationship tension. I love that there's, you know, there's always tension with these you guys. Mean that, you mean what we're just talking about? Or you mean like the sort of their argument about what to do with this? That. The situation. That. Yeah. Just, you know, just the, they don't just go, these are brothers. There are brothers that are complicated relationship. They well, like, tension. Yeah, Sam brings up that point of like, Jessica, the girl we see get killed in the pilot, 
who's clearly very close to him, he never gave her the family backstory. Right. And here Dean is yapping his face off to the first girl he falls in love with. Really pissed Sam off. Right. And, right. and it, that showed in the episode. Yeah. Uh, my other thoughts about it were, I love the Vancouver weather. You, you know, there's like, all of a sudden it's snowing in the scene. It was like literally hailing, snowing, yeah. and downpouring. Yeah. And they're like, hell of a summer here in Missouri. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, like, <laughs> And it doesn't snow that much in Missouri, so that thought that was really funny. Yeah, and and there are a lot of there are other episodes we've we've watched that we'll talk about later where you see it's raining. And then the other thing is that the woman in the monologue, the monologue the mom does, is she really nails it. She's great. Goes for it. Yeah, yeah man, she's great. Yeah, I mean that was a four page monologue. Yeah. Do you also notice? And this is also something I didn't love is they just kept sometimes arbitrarily cutting the shots of the truck. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah, like, oh weird. man, there was a truck one time, and then it was, just show yeah, a truck. Was, it was the truck from the past. It was like, boy, in the 60s, he drove this truck, and they just... <laughs> truck. Well, um, more good news. What? We're talking to Jay Gruska today. And and we're saying Jay Gruska correctly, because we didn't say it correctly when we interview him. You will hear that in a minute. Yeah. But Jay Gruska, one of the original composers on the show, along with Chris Lennertz, who have, we've already had on the show. But what a lengthy resume this man has. 21 oh. Jump Street. Yeah, 30-something. Lois, Lois and, and Clark. Clark. Uh, Beverly Hills 90210. The original one, by the way. Yep. Okay. And uh, Charmed. Yeah. Eight seasons of Charmed. And not just TV. He did films. He, he did Commando, Adventures in Babysitting. Little Shop of Horrors, and a movie that I love, Cocoon. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. An amazing soundtrack. Right. And he's also a songwriter. He's uh, written or co-written songs for Amy Grant, Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, Chicago. Robert Palmer. The Pointer Sisters. And of course, Mr. Tearaway Pants himself. Sean Cassidy. Is that the Cassidy you know? Yeah. All right, well, without further ado. Here he is, Mr. Jay Greska. So, yeah, so we've got with us today, joining us on the podcast. Legend. Very excited. Legend. 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 Jay Gruska is here. Jay Gruska is right there. Hi, Jay. Can I do a quick correction? Yes. That U.S. in the middle of my name is pronounced us. Gruska. 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 Yeah. Dude, I've been saying time, it wrong for a long time. You know what? I've been heard it wrong for my entire life. So I just occasionally, it's been just so way off for Dude, forever. Dude, I'm so glad you said something, yeah. though, because I'm a guy, I don't think anybody prob probably mispronounces Benedict, but Spate gets mangled. Oh. I mean, uh, mangled. Sprite, Spate. People put an R in it all the time. Sprite. Yes. There's no yeah. R in it. Right. Yeah, I get Benedict a lot. <laughs> really? Not as a joke. People say Benedict. Um, yeah. But huh. well, but Jay, uh, I feel bad because, you know, when we had cinematographer... Uh, Serge Ladusseur? Yes. I, I f***ed up Ladusseur. Oh. Yeah. But, we, we but gotta, that's we, hard, right? But Jay Gruska is what I thought your name was all this no. time. It's Jay Gruska. Jay Gruska. Yeah, it's Jay Gruska. But you know what? It's, uh, it's It was probably Gruska in, you know, old country <laughs> Poland a right, right, hundred right, years right. ago. Right. Uh, maybe Gruska. Would probably right, be more right. accurate, but right. um, yeah, it's well, we'll, we'll never correction. make that mistake again. No, and I'm, I think it's important for this podcast that yeah. people now know the real story behind Jay Gruska, the composer's name. It's all good. And unlike when we screwed up Sarah's name, we probably won't get an angry email from Emmanuel <laughs> Macron, <laughs> who is offended by our yeah. Sarah's Lady Sarah. Um, <laughs> Jay, funny. dude, you have a long and storied history with Bob Singer. Probably a questionable history. <laughs> but what I want to know before we dive into that relationship is supernatural. 
how, when, where, how did you get involved? Give us your origin story. Right. Well, as you guys, I'm sure know, Kripke and Chris Lennertz were college buddies. And Chris got hired, as he should have been, not only for his prodigious talent, but because they were buddies. And it's a beautiful loyalty story there. Don't get me started on both those guys. I could easily do the hour on them and my respect and love for them both. But he got hired to do the pilot. And then I think because Eric was a newbie in the television world, you know, he sort of was assigned a showrunner in Bob Singer, who's experience was vast. And, you know, Bob knew that Chris had been hired to do the pilot. And there was, you know, I guess there was a moment where Bob said, well, I have my guy. And, you know, and Eric said, I have my guy. And the way that I always assumed it, and of course, Chris did the pilot. And the way that I assumed it at the beginning was that they were going to see which felt better. And the other one was going to possibly be let go. And I you know, I have a reasonable amount of confidence, but I kind of assumed that it was going to be me that was let go because of that pre-existing relationship. Right. And um, when I met Chris, I mean, in 30 seconds, I loved the guy. So, and then I was actually at the spotting session for the pilot because I had already been hired under this idea that he would do the pilot and I would do the very next episode. And then the I think the unspoken part was, let's see who we like better. That, that's the way that I perceived it. And, you know, much to certainly my joy, we each had our own voice in the thing and both got asked to continue. And I, more accurately, I got asked to continue. <laughs> and that was the beginning of it. And, you know, I mean, the, that we talked, you know, I mentioned the loyalty between, um, you know, Eric and, and Chris. I've had the same thing with, with Bob Singer. You know, he ah, just called right. me on almost just about every show he's done since the first show I did with him was uh, Lois and Clark, New Adventures of oh, Superman. Wow. So, wow. Um, you know, it's a rare thing, you know, yeah. the, that sweet loyalty. and Yeah. And it's also a rare thing. I think we talked to Chris about this a little bit, but I think it's also a rare thing that there are two composers for a show. You see it a lot with DPs, but not usually with composers, right? Am I correct? Completely correct. And then ironically for me, Supernatural was the second show in a row that I had alternated. I did all eight seasons of Charmed and alternated on that. And I had never done that before. Every series I've done, you know, I've done a lot of, you know, one hour dramas in three decades. And that was the first one that I was asked to alternate, then going right into this. And I guess the scary part at first is how do you maintain a, a musical through line and a continuity and thematic connection and all that? But it happened to work in both both the shows and especially in Supernatural, especially those first few seasons of Supernatural, maybe really just the first season. You know, everything was such a one one off little movie on its own monster of the week thing you know it allowed a different voice to happen and, and you know we had some chris and i had a few conversations just about general palette I, I don't think we actually had that conversation in detail till we had each had done a show or two and went oh here are the kind of ballpark parameters and of course in the end after 15 seasons, why I loved working on this show so much, aside from the, the people, which is always the first thing, yeah. um, was the musical landscape. It was always different. Right. right. I mean, the, the boogeyman stuff was fairly consistent. 
Right. Um, but everything from a rye cootery kind of vibe to a full orchestra the next week to, you know, Scooby-Doo to one of Spate's directed shows where I was a Quentin Tarantino-esque kind of, yeah, kind yeah. of vibe. And, you know. Which we will get to in about 14 years. Yeah, exactly. Well, you bring <laughs> us in to this story then. Let's talk, that's a good segue to, into this specific script. So here you are, you're handed this script. What part of the process do you start thinking about? I mean, obviously you haven't seen shot footage. Are you already formulating a sound when you're looking at the printed word? Well, I'll share with you what my philosophy has been, and I will always read a script when I'm asked to do it. But what really informs me, more than the movie that I will make in my head when I'm reading a script, is looking at an image, seeing the lighting, seeing the rhythm of the actor, seeing the vibe of the scene, the pace of the scene, the temp score. If it's there, what, how that might be correct or how that might be incorrect. And so in the whole 15-year run of Supernatural, I maybe read three, maybe four scripts because gotcha. the rest of them was a rough cut, watching a rough cut. Because, you wow. know, I, I, I always watch the rough cut. I watched every rough cut because, you know, you have to walk into a spotting session having a sense of what the story is already and right. what the right. vibe is. But um, yeah, that, that that's a long-winded way to say I much prefer in this medium seeing what I need to see and right. hearing what I need to hear, even if there's no temp score, just based on the rhythm of the actors and the way it's lit and what the underpinning story is. So um, I don't know. Did that answer your question? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, totally. Okay, guys, hold on. We're coming right back. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. And now back to the episode. And you said something. So we like to educate our listeners while we're having these conversations. Yeah. Use the term temp score. Yes. A temp score. Explain to a non-cinemaphile what that is. Basically, it's before a composer gets involved, and sometimes before a composer's hired, it's music put into a show or a movie by the director and or producers to show what the direction might be musically. Sometimes it's spot on, sometimes it's not accurate, but either way, you know, it, it will show. And, you know, it's done for either test audiences or the network or anything so that you're not just showing, uh, you know, 48 minutes of silence and dialogue. You know, sometimes composers think, think uh, they didn't used to do it, you know, that this is the advent of, I don't know, maybe this started happening more in the 90s. Before that, other than having a song in, there was not a lot of temp stuff done. There might have been some before that, but then it became a regular thing. And some composers have the, the bad luck. I mean, we've all been through it. You know, a director and or producer is having temp love. And uh -huh, so right, it, sure. it just shuts down the possibility for the composer to stretch in some unforeseen area that might be wonderful. Right. Because this is... This is the sound we've fallen in love with, you know? Yeah. We, we call it demoitis in the band. It was like you make a demo and you kind of fall in love with the demo, but even though you need to re-record it. Right there with you. 
Yeah. So, sorry, I'm going to circle back to you and Chris for a second. Is there like a common file that you both pull from? Okay, this is a a dramatic or foreboding scene. Were any of the pieces that you used co-produced or co-composed? No, only I would say, I don't know, what were there? Maybe three or four episodes that we worked on together, but each wrote our own music. Got it. Because like, for instance, uh, you know, the musical. Right, of course, um, yeah. Fan fiction. Yeah. Such such a fun project. Um, you know, we each, I did a couple songs. I think Chris had one song in it. I had a two. And then we co-wrote the underscore. And things like that, where we would, you know, we sat in a spotting session together. And right. maybe as, as we were spotting, you know, Chris might say, oh, I'll take that one in terms yeah. of let's yeah. d- dividing the show up. We did that right. on on that, on I think uh, Time After Time. I've, oh, and Scoob, Scooby Natural. Sure. Scooby Natural, wow. which, yeah. you know, so we actually have never written together, right. but we've worked on the same episodes together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I can't speak speak for him, but I'm in his, I'm in Chris's fan club. Oh, he, uh, you're he, definitely in his fan club, you, yeah. buddy, in a big way. Yeah. Um, how much, I know you, you came into this with being Bob Singer's guy, but Bob Singer directed only, <laughs> only, you know, 50, which is a ton, but oh a, a show that had 300 and something episodes. So you obviously worked with other directors. You worked with a lot of other directors. How hands-on are other directors or is it really the showrunner dealing with you and Bob dealing with you? How does that relationship work? Well, that that's a good question. Uh, and first of all, I loved when I saw your name on a show I was going to do, Dick. Likewise. Honestly, I think we did either three or four together and they were all a blast and unique. I still remember the air guitar solo you had <laughs> Dude, that was great. Dude, that was a lot of fun. I would say as a generic statement that in movies, you're dealing almost exclusively with the director. And in television, it more often falls into the producers or production team that is in the spotting session. Present company excluded because you you showed up to a couple of your spots, which I loved. Right. Um, but you I'm know, not sure. But, I think I got, I think those guys let me in, A, because I wanted to be there, but B, because I was, quote unquote, in the family, so to speak. Absolutely. Like maybe, you know, maybe it's not an opportunity afforded every visiting director. I'm not sure. You might be right. You might be right because that that's what I was trying to say as a, as a sort of a general rule in television, the relationship at, at the spotting session where it is decided where music goes, the style of the music, what's the actual start, what's the out, all these things called cues. You know, a piece of mm-hmm. music, I'll talk to our audience here, a piece of music in a TV show or in a movie other than a song. A song is a song. A sung song with lyrics and a melody and a band or a guitar or piano, whatever it is. But if there's a singer on it with a lyric and a musical accompaniment, that's a song. But an instrumental piece of music in a movie or TV show is called a cue, C-U-E. So that relationship in, in television tends to be producers and the composer, much more so than the director and the composer. And there are exceptions to that, too. We specifically are talking about the episode called Route 666. Um, or Route 666, depending on what part of the country it's you're from. Gruska Gruska. Yes. Tomato. Tomato, tomato. So do you remember your first impression of this? Uh, this? It's a very, it's a unique Monster of the Week episode, really. Killer car. Dude. It was. Listen, it evoked immediately, because I don't know if you guys remember Steven Spielberg's first movie, Duel. Sure. Duel. Duel, yeah. yeah. Duel. It's very I mean, Duel. 
So, yeah. so uh, it was incredibly cool and incredibly scary with like, what? Seriously? I never see the driver and I'm terrified. Yeah. Terrified, you know? yeah. So it, it evoked that. But, you know, the, the thing that two things struck me. And the only reason I remember it is because I scanned it yesterday. I sort of yeah. went through it and went, oh, yeah, that. And oh, yeah, that. Right, Two things yeah. struck me. One was the social consciousness of Eugenie and Brad's script. It, it, yeah. it, 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 I just thought it was cool to just deal with the, you know, the race and racist yes. historical nature of the underpinnings of that script. And I just thought that's kind of responsible and cool. And the mm. second thing that occurred to me was, oh, I'll probably be scoring sometimes when this truck is on. Here's the final score, you know, not the, not the musical score, but the score in the competition of truck versus music. Right. Truck won, music nothing. Because every time that truck was on, and I was, you know, I didn't know how loud they would play it, but, you know, I was writing was, detailed uh, stuff you don't really hear it yeah, you know right. truck yeah. truck one but you know yeah. that's that's the nature of the beast yeah literally the nature of that beast now not only was there a truck with no driver dual ask in the show there's also supernatural's first and might i say really lengthy uh sex scene love making sequence well rob calls it a sex scene i call it a love making sequence <laughs> and, and i'm curious <laughs> that was new to this show. How did you approach that? And how does that approach your, uh, I mean, obviously that kind of scene requires a different deft, deft handling of the music. So how well, did you approach it? Well, I mean, the first way I approach it, because, you know, Jensen Ackles is the handsomest man on, on the planet, is That's I didn't true. let my wife watch it. That's the first <laughs> thing. But uh, no, honestly, I don't think that I had score in that lovemaking scene. I think there was a song there. I don't remember exactly. You but know I, what? I, I, I think there is a song yeah, in that, in that a, there's sequence. There's a song in that. Yeah. So that's that's my answer to that, is that okay, I, you know I didn't have to contend with that. So, Jay, now you may be aware of this, you may not, but the, the bummer is Rob and I, for the most part, haven't seen a lot of early Supernatural. So we're watching a lot of this for the first time, and we're watching it on Netflix, ah. which means we're not getting the original songs. Oh, yes. Right. Right. So I don't know what song went, went I don't in know this either. love, love yeah. scene. It might be in our notes here. I remember thinking that the song that was in the love scene wasn't necessarily all that awesome. Um, oh, it's it the original broadcast featured great music from James Gang, Bad Company, and Blind Faith. So. I guarantee you there was a badass song in that scene yeah, that wasn't sure. Wow, when I watched it. You don't you know, hear that on the Netflix versions. Uh -huh. You know, that's so interesting. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, either Bob or Phil would, would certainly know, but for sure there was a contractual thing about um, well, something like Well, yeah, we DVDs, got into it with them. DVDs. Yeah, we got into that with them early on. I think, it, gee, or somebody told us, it was, they cleared everything for everything, but quote unquote new media like they weren't thinking in terms of exactly streaming exactly. so streaming there was, didn't get there cleared. was not really such thing then i mean you know netflix was oh i just got this dvd delivered for the youngsters out there that's yeah. what netflix used to be was a dvd delivery yeah, it was DVD, so. yeah when, when rob was gonna netflix and chill with somebody it usually meant get a dvd and relax with somebody heck yeah, yeah. you know um it uh, turns out it's she Brings Me Love by... Brings? Sorry. Yeah, oh, Brings she, Me Love. She Brings Me Love by Bad Company. Interesting. During, during the uh, lovemaking. It's not good. Boy, our, our producer boys definitely found some cool shit. Um, they yeah. did. Am I allowed to say cool shit? Oh, yeah, yeah. You can say whatever. Okay. You say whatever. Man, it's a free-for-all. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so uh, for the Monster of the Week's episodes in this first season, did you try to give different spirits, different ghosts 
themes? It's a great question also, because the truth is, is that, and I remember Eric and some combination of Eric and Bob inferring that, certainly for that first season, that every episode identity was a movie unto itself. So there was no particular repeating. I forget which, there was a theme that I wrote that was came to be known by the fans as, you know, the sort of the, the brother's family theme uh-huh. that sort of became a, a fan favorite, which I loved. Um, but and, that was later? And I did that. I forget if it, it might have been the last episode. Is, when was Swan Song? Swan Song is the end of season five. Five. Oh, my God. So, so yeah. until the end of season five, there were basically no repeats. Right. And, and honestly, wow. that was almost the philosophy in the whole show. But inevitably, when you get lucky to have a run that long, yeah. you know, you have to reinvent the wheel several times. And so right. inevitably different, if not the entire theme, little Polaroid color moments that I had used before became, let's say, the body of something with a new top layer written that would apply to the thing. And that's just survival in a television scoring world where you have a week to write a score, you know? Yeah. The first few seasons, oh no, these were all movies. Wow. Obviously that makes it exciting, but does it make it stressful? Because is it achievable, you know? It's certainly stressful. And one of the first things I learned in television scoring was making peace with not like I came from a I came from a songwriting background. I mean, that's the whole first half of my career writing life was as as a songwriter. Yeah. And, you know, my general vibe on that was song wasn't finished till it was finished. You know, what there was no clock ticking on when a song was finished. It was finished when when I dug it, you know. Right. And so a little bit of the well, maybe sometimes it's a bitter pill, but it's really just a reality, and it, and it, and it's when craft comes in, is uh, when you have a week to write a twenty-five or thirty-minute score. Wow! You sort of pick your moments, mm-hmm. and some of the other things have to be. I just have to get it done. That's right. not to say that you, you know, you hope for the best quality in each one. But the the truth is, is that some things inevitably you look back at them a week or a year or a decade later and go, oh man, if I'd only had another day for that. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I'm sure. You know, right. That might even apply to songs too, right? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, to a certain extent. But yeah. it's it's I, I can't even imagine it having it's a tight it's a tight window. You know, really as a as a songwriter, you're going all right. You know, you can only do so much. So much. And, and you know what? Like, like all of us, you just develop the muscle. Mm-hmm. You just develop right. the muscle. And, right. you know, with repetition, like anything, you, you know, you hopefully get better at it. Yeah. A lot of people who watch the show don't realize that since it was shot in Vancouver, the pre-production, that is the, the writing of the show and the post-production is all done in L.A., and we shoot it in Vancouver. Yeah. So did you have any interaction with Jared and Jensen? Um, Phil asked me. In season three or four or somewhere in there, maybe season five, he asked me to come up. Phil Scrisha invited me up. So, you know, I because I alternated with Chris, I was able to do that on a week where where I wasn't writing. And so I went up and met those guys. And my first impression was, 
Jesus, they're tall. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, that's right. But, Thank you. You know, but um, <laughs> just couldn't have been sweeter. Both great. Yeah. And then um, that was the main time. But I think one time at the screening for, um, I guess, season 10, the musical, a little quick hello. Um, but uh, I'm not so sure that they could pick me out of a crowd of two <laughs> visually. It's so funny because, you know, you spent so much of your career looking at them as you're scoring, yeah? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm happy to say that with, I think, Jensen's um, blessing, um, I got the call last week to uh, work on Winchester's. Oh, oh that's nice. fantastic. You, that's heard it, you heard it here, folks. We're breaking news, buddy. Yeah, we're breaking news. I got we're it. not I, disconnected, I, totally. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's awesome, dude. Congratulations. That's, that's really great. cool. Um, listen, I mean, uh, you know, Robbie Thompson. Yeah, Amen. man. Uh, yeah. It's a class A team. They got all, assembled there. All-star team. Yeah. So I, I think I've been thinking about that too. If you're like one of the young actors reading for John or Mary Winchester, man, you got to be nervous. <laughs> like oh, yeah. it's a big gig. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the, the potential upside is enormous from an acting standpoint, career standpoint for the, for the young folks who we cast in those roles. Yeah. Exactly. It's a big yeah. deal. Wow. Exactly. That's great, man. That's uh, exciting. Yeah. Congratulations. That's Thank really you. cool. Yeah. It's just fun. I just... You know, you'd think that after a long run like that, it's like, okay, I'm done with that. But man, anything to uh, be in that environment, you know, and I loved Robbie because we we wrote a couple of tunes, uh-huh. you know, a couple of actual songs. They were his first songs ever in, yeah. in his life. And so- That's amazing. So, yeah, Robbie uh, Thompson, so. who who we'll talk about later in the series- We will. But uh, wrote some of, really some of the most beloved episodes of Supernatural Life. great ones. I would agree. Do you remember any other big moments in Route 66, big moments that you were going for? Yeah, the only thing that uh, uh, in my little um, scan, um, when, uh, and I don't remember any characters' names or anything, but when the mother who, when she goes into a fairly long speech. Right, that sort of story of what all happened. Yeah, and just really a little snippet of our... Oh, yeah. Racist history. You know, that was an emotional thing to write. And I thought, you know, it's it's such wall-to-wall dialogue that I chose to do it pretty much just with string writing, because then there's no jagged edge to that in terms of a, a percussive sound, piano or guitar. And, um, you know, I just wanted it to be hymnal. Oh, uh, yeah. And kind of like amazing grace-ish uh, yeah, under yeah. it. And so that was, that was uh, I remember that. And then... Which is interesting because, Jay, in the story, mm-hmm. the burning of the church is a big cornerstone of that story. So when you talk about hymnal and amazing grace and sort of that that idea behind the song, that I mean, that's right in line with, with the story. Is that part of what inspired you to go that direction yeah, in terms of it was. that theme? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and yet subtle. I mean, that's, that's what I think is so magical about what you do and and some sometimes underappreciated is you're you're creating the vibe underneath the emotion you're telling us what we should be feeling almost and yet it's subtle that you don't even know it's there sometimes well i think that's the kind of the definition of a film score you know in theory doing its its job, job which is yeah. that unless you're talking about a big broad theme where you can associate it with a character or uh, anything that john williams ever wrote but uh, unless unless you're you're associating with that sort of the, the the some of the finest scoring moments are when you might watch a scene or two and go oh was there music there but i'm feeling all this stuff and then you know you don't necessarily you're not necessarily aware that you've yeah. heard the score for 3 right. minutes right. because you've yeah. been taken somewhere 
in a subtext emotional place, you know? Yeah. Well, and I would say to anyone listening, go back and and watch that monologue again that woman does and listen to the score. Because I'm sure you didn't hear it the first time. And now go back and listen and you'll notice it doesn't exist without it. You know, Uh, they used to do this thing at the Oscars where they would have you appreciate the score. Right. They would show you a scene from an Oscar nominated movie without the score in it. Right. And you realize. Yeah. What a vacancy it leaves without it. So I I think one of the great oversights uh, of this show is that it never released, along with its DVD collection, an annual soundtrack. You know, we did the the season five sort of snapshot of the previous five seasons. You know, Chris and I each picked, I don't know, a half a dozen, maybe 10 things that in some cases we edited an overture type of thing together of certain styles. And then we never got to do it again until the season 10 fan fiction episode. I agree with you. I think it would have been, you know, a cool thing to do. Well, I, you know, because, because we're, you know, we're guys on the inside. Right. I have a few of the, because Jay's, you know, did me a solid, oh. sent me a couple of the tracks, you know, that are like from episodes I directed that I have on a playlist on my phone that I listen to all the time. Like it's, it's gorgeous Are those music. the bootleg CDs you're selling outside yeah. Staples uh, Center? It's on the bootleg bay. <laughs> um, it's, gr- it's great though. The music is so gorgeous. And when I listen to it, I'm not listening to supernatural score i'm listening to beautiful score like it's just your music is just next level it's just stunning compliment and you know i can only return the the gesture by saying that it's serving the images that i was presented with you know so well it was a beautiful marriage i think and this goes to the theory that it's such a team sport i mean like people who think that it's like oh it's all about the star or it's all about the writer or the director man that is so far from the truth it's about it's about experts in every facet of the industry getting together and doing their collective best that is totally true and that was in that first year and a half of the pandemic when basically there was you know there were all these rules for sets and then uh, post-production was virtually nothing like what it was before in that you know you didn't get together first spotting session you did it on zoom you know you didn't go to a the dub slash you know the final mix of of an episode where they mixed once again for your for our audience here uh you know where they mixed dialogue sound effects music you know everything sort of comes together yeah and uh you know um those were fun things to socially and human contact connect with you know, as a composer, because as a composer, you know, there's a lots of, of alone time. Yeah. Trying to trying yeah. to puzzle solve what melody, what harmony, what you know, co- counterpoint, what what thing to do, and it's a lot of alone time. So one of the things to look forward to is either the spotting session, the dub, or the date with the musicians. Right. You know oh, what I yeah. mean. And so when that got taken away, it was it was, it was you really realized how much. Oh yeah. How important it was. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. How often did you use external musicians? In I your used stuff? external musicians on every show, but the amount that I used varied a lot. Um, ah. Sometimes it would be one or two guest players. I would say the average was three to four. And the idea was to have specialists a specialist guitar player, a specialist woodwind player, mm. a specialist violin or cellist. You know, my daughter played percussion on a Big batch of shows. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, huge amount of shows. I, I don't know, 10 or 20 episodes where she just either brought a drum kit in or congas or or weird things. Um, you know, her her pocket is so 
good that you know i just that's awesome and, you know i just wanted her in here even if she only played two bars you know well if people don't know jay's uh children are both accomplished musicians uh producers they were in a band called the bell brigade who i'm i was a huge fan i and, remember uh, you telling yeah. me that rob that's yeah that, yeah that's yeah, and I Wonderful. see your and your son's working all the time. I see he worked with Phoebe Bridgers among many other artists. So he yeah, um, that was, he got a Grammy nomination for producing yeah. that record last year, and um, that's amazing. And has kind of taken off just you know producing. He's working with lots lots of uh, lots of new artists and a couple of established acts. And yeah, very very fortunate that way to have uh, that's awesome. Have kids uh, you know doing what they love and and eking out a living. Doing it. Yeah, man. Just yeah. eking out the occasional Grammy nomination. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's nice to see him trying. Well, they had a they had a they had a great mentor. Yeah, man. This has been so great having you on the show. It's not the last time, but it certainly is the first time. Thank you so much for being here, being a part of this. Many thanks to you both. Hey there, this is Jensen. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Uh, but we need to pull over for a second for some messages. And I gotta take a leak. Thanks for supporting Supernatural, then and now. And now, back to the show. Well, that was great. What a great guy. Oh, my gosh. Love Jay. The nicest guy in the world. And to reiterate, Rob and I know him well because he he, uh, scored 10 episodes of Kings of Khan. Yeah. Great friend uh, and great musician. Yeah. And just one of those uh, gracious people that always is so respectful of other artists as well, which I always find is a really charming attribute. He's, he's so uh, decorated as a songwriter and composer, and yet he's so generous with his compliments of us that we don't necessarily deserve, but he's just a sweetheart. Great man. Um, all right. So this episode, you know, we said earlier, maybe it wasn't um, one of our favorites, but there's uh, some interesting stuff in it. There's a lot of mythology going on. There's a lot of heavy mythology going on. Yeah. The 1963 church fire that killed the children during choir practice may be a reference to the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed four children during choir practice. Which is horrible. Yeah. But again, you know, props out to this episode for at least shining some light onto that. That, Which is, it's a Eugenie Ross Lemming and Brad Buckner episode. That's right. Veteran writers, great people, people we know well, and people who will be interviewed on this podcast when they officially join the writing staff uh, in a few years. Right. Um, But this was their one-off early on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of of intense symbolism. Yeah. And deep roots to the story. Yeah. Uh, Another interesting mythology point. Dean makes a connection to the Flying Dutchman. The Flying Dutchman was an 18th century sea captain who once found himself struggling to round the Cape of Good Hope during a ferocious storm. He swore that he would succeed even if he had to sail until Judgment Day. The devil heard his oath and took him up on it. The Dutchman was condemned to stay at sea forever. In seafaring lore, the sighting of the phantom ship is an omen of doom. I think it's interesting that Dean uh, is so familiar with the Flying Dutchman and you are fond of a Dutch oven. Well... (laughs) That's a stretch. That I mean, so those of you listening along at home, a Dutch oven, of course, is when you uh, pass gas underneath the sheets of an uh, of the bed, and your unwilling, uh, unknowing uh, bed partner gets a good gets a good whiff of it. That's a Dutch oven. Uh, not. To be confused with Flying Dutchman, completely different thing. But if you give somebody a, a Dutch oven on an airplane, it is a Flying Dutch oven. Actually, it's an omen of doom. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly for the staff. <laughs> All right, fun facts, fun facts, fun facts. All right, Route 666 was a real road until 2003 when it was renamed Route 491. Ooh, that's even scarier. I didn't know that. Me neither. 
I know, read 66. Maybe, maybe people didn't want to live on Satan's highway. Yeah, I guess not. Editor Anthony Pickers was expressly told by the studio not to depict Cassie on top for the sex scene. So Eric Kripke insisted on it. That's such a it's such a Kripke move. Take that, studio. <laughs> and why? Well, I don't I don't understand why that would be a thing. That, that was back before cable took over the world and people were still worried about piddly Ad- crap. Advertisers and stuff? Yeah, I guess. Um, the title of the episode, Route 666, pays reference to the TV show, Route 666, one of the series that influenced Supernatural. Two guys on the road in a cool car helping people in trouble. Or as it's typed here, in a cool, cool care. care. In season four, episode 18, Route 666 is the title of one of Chuck's Supernatural books. Dean says to Chuck, everything's in here. I mean everything, from the racist truck to me having sex. I'm full frontal in here, dude. Great. Now this time, do it as Dean. Ladies and gentlemen, doing his Dean imitation, Rob Benedict. Everything's in here. Sammy! Everything's in here. I mean, everything. From the racist truck to, to me having sex. I mean, I'm full frontal in here, dude. And scene. That wasn't great, but pretty good. You do a better Dean than me. Nobody does. Check out Dean's odometer. Sam tells Dean to drive 0.7 miles. When Dean first looks, the odometer reads 70098.2. When he stops, it reads 70100.6. Does it really? A 2.4 mile difference. I did notice that math didn't feel like it added up there. Oh, man. Huh. Yeah, we're just watching the, the numbers roll by, but yeah. All right, well, look, as I said, when I was watching the episode, I'm like, this isn't the best episode, but it's it's still fun to watch. I still, It's always fun to watch. Sam They're all Dean. fun to watch. It's it, all great. It's like watching superheroes, right? It's always fun to watch them do their thing. It is indeed. And I just uh, want to thank Jay uh, Gruska again for joining us. What a treat it was to talk to him. It was so great. And you make a point, Rob, even maybe not our favorite Supernatural episode, is still great television. Yeah. No small thanks to Jay Gruska for his beautiful score in this episode and so many other episodes. Yeah. And I want to give a special shout out, because we haven't done this yet, to all everyone listening to these episodes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we really appreciate you and appreciate you're here and um, hope you're enjoying it. Yeah, man. We uh, we really appreciate all the support we're getting for the show. So anyway, thanks again for joining us uh, and keep listening. Don't forget to subscribe. You got to subscribe. We need you to subscribe. Did I mention you should subscribe? You didn't. Oh, please subscribe. This episode stars Jensen Ackles as Dean Winchester and Jared Padalecki as Sam Winchester. The guest stars were Megalyn Ekekunwoke as Cassie Robinson, Kathleen Noon as Mrs. Robinson, Gary Hetherington as Mayor Harold Todd. Route 666 was written by Brad Buckner and Eugenie Ross Lemming. Directed by Paul Shapiro. Edited by Anthony Pinker. Music by Jay Gruska. Jay Gruska. Executive produced by Eric Kripke and Robert Singer. The original broadcast featured some great music that I didn't get to hear from James Gang, Bad Company, and Blind Faith. The episode first aired January 31st, 2006. This episode of Supernatural Then and Now was hosted and executive produced by Richard Spade Jr. and Rob Benedict. Produced by Stephen Hine. Written by Stephen Hine and Hayda Holscher. And edited and associate produced by Trey Booty. What's up, Booty? Music provided by Tim Wynn. This episode was recorded with the help of Sonic Fuel Studios and Fartoon Studios. That's true. This podcast is from Story Mill Media. For news on this and other podcasts, follow Story Mill Media on Instagram and Twitter. Okay, we are recording. Can you hear a check, check from you, Rich? Check, check, check. <laughs> in cool care. <laughs> my, my Uncle Johnny's in cool care. <laughs> 
Check oh, it. speaking of Dean, check, check out, out Dean's odometer. You know what I'm saying? Check out Gene's odometer. <laughs> check out, check out Gene. Check out. Oh, for Christ's sake! <clears throat> yeah, exactly. I'm gonna text you guys. I'm on set. Just thought you guys should know. <laughs> still, still laughing. Uh, Route six 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 was a. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> oh my God, that's good. Uh. <laughs> Storymill Media. 